for March 11th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 558. Some are born Cree, some achieve Cree-ness, and some have Cree-ness thrust upon them. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking over the things that interest us. This week, uh, a little a little independent film called Captain Marvel, which uh, bowed to $153 million in a three-day weekend, over $300 million foreign uh, box office up to uh, almost half a billion um, total take for this film in the time, this new film in the time that it's been in release. So, hey, uh, way, way to go, Reddit trolls. You really are using your life to uh, accomplish something of value. So uh, this, this, like, uh, this film, everyone, everyone uh, went to see it, apparently. Um, and it is, a, uh, it is an interesting and multivocal and... Uh, sort of slightly self-contradictory film and it is interesting to imagine how this character with the rules that they've set up for her will slot into the rest of the uh, into the rest of the team in the Marvel universe with uh, Avengers Endgame coming up but before we do that I am Matt Rather and let me introduce you uh, to the other people on my flight crew Mr. Peter Fenzel Hey Matt and Mr. Mark Lee Hello, Matthew. All right, let's kick the tires and light the fires. Uh, I just want to get up there and whoop E.T.'s ass. <laughs> um, so uh, let's, let's uh, get to the most important question about Captain Marvel, which is Clark Gregg versus Samuel L. Jackson versus uh, any of the other characters, versus uh, Annette Bening, um, any of the people who were digitally altered to make them appear younger, which character for you was the uncanniest was the deepest plunged the deepest into the uncanny valley with the age the de-aging work that they did uh on them let's go around the horn uh pete what what about you who was the the most in the in the in well in the after credit sequence they did a really good job with captain america and black widow because you can barely tell that they're scrolls who've infiltrated and taken over the avengers right like it's just it's just a breath of a hint that that is going to be the plot of avengers endgame uh that everybody you heard it here first scroll invasion has been in full effect this whole time spider-man is fine that was a scroll teenager who was conscripted into service so and then that is in fact by the way going to continue to be the scroll teenager as spider-man oh it's actually gonna be a uh, real it'll be another scroll dressed as spider-man in all the rest of the spider-man movies in much the same way that harry kim dies in the second season of voyager is replaced by a double from an alternate dimension projection and no one ever comments on it ever again uh no 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 um i i was bothered a lot uh, throughout the movie, and not necessarily in a way that that damaged my appreciation of the movie, more of a, in a way that informed my appreciation of the movie by D.H. Samuel L. Jackson, and ah. specifically uh, by the techniques that, to me, because I was looking for it, seemed obvious in 
trying to acquit, you know, aid and abet the de-aging of Samuel L. Jackson, such as like putting him out of focus in the background of more shots, putting him in smoky rooms, having him face away when he's having a conversation, covering his mouth with a beverage, which he did on several occasions, right? Just like all of these sort of like little tweaks that I've looked for in movies ever since I learned that uh, of all, all of the sort of practical effects that Peter Jackson used to make the hobbits look short in the Lord of the Rings movies, yeah. <laughs> all of the little sort of toy, little tricks and toys. Uh, but but yeah, Samuel L. Jackson, I mean, I'm a big fan of Die Hard with a Vengeance, which, of course, came out around the time when this movie is supposed to be taking place. And the, the Samuel L. Jackson, this movie does not look anything like Samuel L. Jackson from Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, and, you know, he looks like I mean, maybe he looks like Samuel L. Jackson from Die Hard with a Vengeance with a bunch of boxed Botox injection injections. Uh-huh. But uh, but um, but it but it but it got to me. And in a movie which is very heavily concerned with people wearing masks, both real and metaphorical. That's interesting. The idea, yeah. The idea that Samuel Jackson was also wearing a mask throughout the movie felt important and uh, informed some of my thinking about what the movie was doing at various points, whether it intended to or not. And the way that the stories that it tells kind of bake cakes and seek to have them and well, as well as eat them at various points. But I don't know, Mark, what did you think? Who is who got you in terms of the uncanny valley? Well, uh, first, a brief while, actually, I don't think Annette Benning was de-aged oh, was by she not? Uh, I thought... makeup or CGI in this movie. I think she was just Annette Benning. Um, there was not a She's young version elegant of her. She's just elegant and gorgeous at any age, well, right? Yeah, but she, exactly. Oh, I thought, they were, I thought we saw her at different points in time, and maybe as the AI, she was uh, smoothed out a little bit. But maybe I could maybe be a little bit that. Yeah, but you could contribute, contribute that to the algorithm, you know, yeah. that was powering the... Well, she was <laughs> a sprawl the, the whole time, right? So, oh, Exactly. Right? She was always a scroll. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, um, she was a Cree. She was a Cree in disguise, not a scroll. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, so, so to answer the question, uh, and to, to counter Pete, I thought that the Samuel L. Jackson de-aging was spectacular. I bought it 100% wholesale, did not question it for a moment. However, every time Clark Gregg showed up as a young Agent Coulson, I was like, huh, doesn't look right. I, I can't even quite put my finger on it. Just like a bit too much of smoothness yep. of the face. Hairline. Um, and I think that's a yeah, hair. Yeah. Just little things like that um, uh, took me out of it a little bit. And thankfully he wasn't on screen a whole bunch. Um, but to extend it a little bit further, uh, I will slightly criticize the de-aging of Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer in Ant-Man versus the Wasp. Um, uh, you also don't see that on screen a whole lot there, but there is again, a certain flatness um, to to their visages um, that is noticeable um, that just kind of takes you out of the, out of the moment for a second. Um, but maybe that's a kind of a weird sort of inverse uh, thing going on there with like screen time uh, and acceptance, right? Because it's like, you have to, you, you're just presented with so much of young Sam Jackson. Um, you, you're at least for me, maybe it was just like, you know, I just, I just was along for the ride and um, didn't have, uh, you know, the, the shortness, uh, uh, there wasn't like this, like, um, like if it's brief, it almost like calls into attention more because they like know that oh this doesn't quite work, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Kind of like I guess like Princess Leia at the end of um at the end of Rogue One. But yeah, I love the Samuel Jackson de aging. Uh, not so much a fan of the Clark Gregg stuff. I mean that's yeah, Clark Gregg was mine as well. It's, uh, I watch Marvel Agent Marvel's Agents of Shield, um, and that uh, so I'm used to looking at him playing that character in his you know current. Uh, current uh, at his current age right and so like it was just a little uh a little bit weird and i just thought i don't know maybe maybe they they slid up those sliders but I'm really taken with this idea that pete 
uh, proposed about a movie about wearing wearing masks or a movie about sort of false identities, right? And and I I guess it's rather than saying Samuel L. Jackson was wearing a mask, uh, it's more precise to say that Samuel L. Jackson kind of had a mask painted onto his face right after he after he did his work. Though we must have known what they were doing when he he went into the movie, and I'm I'm sort of put in mind of like various traditions of acting like Greek tragedy or um, uh, like Kabuki or other Commedia dell'arte where like um, where mask where actors wear masks right like to kind of to kind of show them to be a type uh, in Commedia dell'arte, the type of the sort of lecherous old rich man or the type of the, you know, uh, young lovers or the type of the crafty maid, right? All, all of those stock characters are, are identified by their masks, which are kind of have exaggerated features and show them in, in, you know, show them in various, uh, various stages. And it, it, um, it allows you to have a kind of shorthand, right? When you're looking at a character and a plot and it's actually very good for meta theater because you can sort of step out from behind the mask or you can kind of subvert expectations in, um, in interesting ways. But this is a, I mean, this was a film about kind of masks that get ripped off or about people kind of lying, lying to each other. And it's uh, something I, I read once in a book by Adam Phillips, the psychoanalyst, who said, if the best thing we can do is in life as people is sort of take care of each other, uh, the worst thing that we can do is not necessarily fail to take care of each other. It's to claim to take care of each other while actually doing something else. And that's what goes on in in this film a lot sort of starting with the the kidnapping of carol danvers by the cree and you know jude law indoctrinating her into the uh into the the way of the cree warriors pete as we were preparing you had sort of a lot to say about this um do you have an opening salvo in the in the cree scroll war of this podcast that you'd like (laughs) to uh open fire with at this moment sure we'll start with the obvious if you think that Captain Marvel, Brie Larson, is actually too emotional and that that is a problem for her. I don't think you're paying attention to the movie <laughs> right now. I don't mean to say that too condescendingly, but the movie tells you on numerous occasions that Captain Marvel's problem is that she is too emotional. We are not supposed to believe the movie. And well, Jude Law is a liar, right? Jude Law is not to be trusted. And it's pretty clear that what's going on is a little bit more sophisticated. So I'd like to build out the syllogism a little bit. Nobody ever looked at Brie Larson and said, wow, she emotes too much, right? She's not that kind of actress. She's she's more of a Bruce Willis and less of a, uh, of a gosh, what would be an equivalent? I don't want to say a Christopher Walken, but like The Rock or like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I guess that's a good good contrast. She's more of a Bruce Willis than an Arnold Schwarzenegger. She she plays it close and she keeps it contained. And her being accused of being too emotional is a lie. And the fact that it is a common sexist criticism should be a tip off that it is a lie. And this is also where the movie really intersects with uh, um, sexism and patriarchy and all this other sorts of stuff, in my opinion. Of course, other people might have other opinions. But but to build it out a tiny bit, right, you've got the idea that Jude Law, who is uh, 
who is obeying the supreme intelligence, which has given him these orders, the supreme intelligence being the AI that controls the Kree civilization by individually manipulating each of the people in it, which is a titanic task, right? Tells Jude Law that he needs to tell Veer, or Veers, rather, that she's too emotional in order to mentor her and make her better, right? That, that's what he, she sort of tells him he should do. And that's what he's internalized. He thinks that that's what he's doing because he's so con- he's so condescending about it. That indicates that he feels like he's actually doing her a favor. But what the Supreme Intelligence has done is install these inhibitors into Captain Marvel's neck to stop her from using her powers. Right. And the coaching whenever she uses her powers to that she's being too emotional. Right. Is really a way of controlling her powers not a way of mentoring her or making her better. And that this dovetails with her experience her entire life of being set up in these kinds of fair play situations where she is given a set of rules that she's supposed to follow. But the but I mean, most of the time, it's quite a bit less sinister than in the case of the supreme intelligence of the Kree, the sort of robo pope that's mind controlling everybody. But it's more like we set up rules that were fair for only a very narrow set of people. Right. Only for a very narrow set of able bodied young men of a very certain age and certain physical ability. They can all climb this rope together. And if you want to hang out with them, you have to do it, too. It's in and telling her that she can't do it. She can't sort of like live by these rules. She's not good enough. It doesn't really serve to mentor her or help her improve. It instead serves to constrain her and keep her from using her power. Right. And, And so this dichotomy of this idea of constructs that that men might come to think of as being associated with fair play from the perspective of the woman being associated with being repressed and kept from participating and kept from actualizing yourself is, I think, the sort of interesting uh, feminist critique on which the movie really turns and turns it into, to, I want to say more than a feminist critique, but kind of like takes the idea of Captain Marvel as an important woman superhero and then builds a larger story around it in a similar way to how, you know, Wonder Woman has certain aspects of her as a superhero that are then kind of universalized, right? Like um, Wonder Woman's optimism, right, gets sort of universalized in her collision with the world that is dominated by men and is full of this sort of senseless violence. And the other side, Captain Marvel, her world is one in which rules are not to be trusted and by experience. And so that's the way in which she kind of comes in collision with the world around her. And I feel like this sets up some really interesting uh, people, people, I, I think I've been reading a lot of, of message boards and comments and stuff. People kind of wonder what her character flaw is. And if anything, I think that this is it. And it's not really a flaw in the sense that it's something that's wrong with her for that's just strictly bad because she has it for very specific reasons. And it really makes sense from her perspective. But I can imagine a whole bunch of situations in which she's going to collide with other people who really do abide by something like a fair play principle who would find it to be like really, really rough. But, but I'll sort of stop there. This this idea of um, the Cree want you to not be emotional. What they really mean is to not be defiant. And and this idea that uh, that being emotional is the same as being defiant is sometimes a movie really kind of makes that monistic, like come on, combines it. So I'm thinking of stuff like what, like uh, movies like The NeverEnding Story, where kind of cognition and your power in the world are really kind of fused in a, in a fantastical way where the world of the universe really is comprised by like the power of imagination. It's not like it in this movie. It's that you're being told not to feel, but what you're but it's it's serving as a proxy for being told not to resist. 
Uh, and and um, I feel like this is kind of the heart of what makes the movie interesting um, because it does sort of collide in these two sort of different movies. But before we get into the kind of two different movies that are in the movies, I'll just sort of let that float out for you guys and see what you think about whether you, you know, you agree or disagree or react or what do you think of Jude Law as a mentor? Would you like to be in his uh, his kung fu class? And and I'll say this. If you if Jude Law was your kung fu teacher and you brought a gun to class and you were doing kung fu with Jude Law and he was beating you and you shot him. Uh, what would what is it that you would be doing wrong in that situation? Because <laughs> I'm going to put that because it's not simple. It, it, it would be so like in much the same way that we talked about how Raiders, it would be easier if Raiders of the Lost Ark really were awful. It would be really this movie would be a lot easier if there really was no reason for Carol Danvers to not use her powers. But, like, there oh. are reasons for her to not use her powers, right? Because she's doing a sparring match. But anyway, sorry, Mark, you, you go ahead. Well, you brought up Raiders of the Lost Ark, so let's make the obvious uh, comparison, right? You know, which is that, you know, in the basket chase scene, um, uh, the swordsman does his fancy moves, and you expect there to be some kind of, like, intricate uh, fisticuff fight, but Inji just pulls out the gun and shoots him. Right, right, right. Right, Definitely. so, like, they, they know, that, that has been referenced in cinema many, many different times there. And, okay. Th- that, this that, is one that, of the better ones. It's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it, it works in Indiana Jones. Jones because oh, that's it, it, it's true to the character of, of, of Indy, and that's his way out of a, of a difficult situation. It's played for laughs. Side note, by the way, it was originally written to be a long, drawn-out fight, but they changed it um, on the fly, and it's you know, it one of the serendipitous things that makes the movie great. Um, but okay, so to answer your question, um, <laughs> what is wrong about uh, bringing a gun to Kung Fu class and, 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 and shooting your teacher? Um, well, I mean, that supposes that everything is being done in good faith. Right. Right. That uh, that uh, your kung fu teacher is not trying to suppress you and manipulate you and exploit you, um, and, and, and you know, bringing a gun and shooting is a bit is not quite the best analogy, right? Because that implies like a a, a true fatality and a finality um, to you know really killing off your instructor, which yeah. notably she doesn't do at the end. She clearly has the opportunity to do, it, but um, out of, because she's a good person, she like zaps his spaceship with a little bit of a jumper boost yeah. and, and sends him up sends him along his way. She, so that's Goku's that's, him. She straight up Goku's him is yeah. what she says. Cause she wants to fight him later when he's stronger. I don't think that's why, but, <laughs> but she definitely Goku's him. Sorry, go ahead. I, I mean, yeah. So I, I co-sign everything you said, Pete, about, um, uh, uh you know, the, the, the rule breaking. Um, and it's not that different per se from a lot of what we see in our Western entertainment, right? Where, um, you know, we're we're it, it's it's it translates also kind of out to like I don't know management in in large organizations, right? Where you need to learn the rules, but the ones who ultimately advance and are going to do the right thing, frankly, get do that by breaking the rules, but doing it in the right way. Does that idea resonate with you, Pete? And at least like either professionally or in the context of superhero <laughs> movies. I mean, it bakes into the idea that the, there's something wrong with the institution. Uh-huh. I think right, yeah. and and yeah. Uh, and this is an institution. That it, it is it is something of a gift that the Cree are never anything other than sneering jerks, right? Like the uh, there's only one exception, and his name is Mary Poppins, y'all. But all of the other Cree in the whole story are terrible. Right? Oh, I like, forgot he's a Cree. And oh, this he, is all, Yondu this a Cree? Is, I thought you're so. right. This is also complicated. But Yondu is well. Think about think about that. I mean, if we want to if we want to kind of think Marvel Cinematic Universe for a little bit, you know. So, like, okay, so think of Marvel Cinematic Universe for a bit. So the Kree are involved simultaneously in two wars at this point. They're involved in a war with the Skrulls, and they're, and we know that they're involved in a war with 
Nova and the planet Xandar uh, because they've been fighting them for a thousand years, as we learned from Ronan the Accuser in Guardians of the Galaxy, because this is you know, he shows up in Guardians of the Galaxy also. So they're kind of conducting this genocide to finish off the Skrulls, who maybe they've already had their home planet destroyed by Galactus, which is what happens to them in the comics. And so that'll be something we find out about in, in uh, Captain Marvel 2 or whatever. Uh, but in whatever event, the Kree are fighting these two wars. And uh, there's this organization called the Ravagers, right, that are out there in the galaxy. And we encounter them in the Guardians of the Galaxy. And they're sympathetic, even though they're pirates, right? Like they're, And I know that in, you know, in Johnny Depp is also sympathetic, despite having his own character flaws and being a pirate. But, like, they're these sort of gangsters, these kind of roving bands of brigands. And yet they seem so sympathetic. And part of it is that the governments of the universe are seem to be at least partially malevolent to a great degree, right? So like Yondu is a rebel from the Kree who joins the Ravagers and has a terrible attitude about bringing people, uh, bringing people up, has no idea how to be a parent. If we want to go back in time, like who did Yondu see when he was hooked up to the Supreme? Pete, I I, I just consulted the Oracle and, and uh, Wikipedia tells me that Yondu is a centaurian. Oh, he's not. Uh, you know, what? I'm just associating everybody in the movie as be that is blue skin as being Cree. Blue, yeah. So I guess maybe he does not. I also don't know why Jude Law doesn't have blue skin in this movie. Um, well, but, right uh, now there are Cree. I mean, some are born Cree, some achieve Creeness, and some have Creeness thrust upon them. Right? That, that, <laughs> <laughs> and like, for example, the blue people are are born Cree. It seems like Jude Law achieves Creeness, and and Carol Danvers uh, has Creeness thrust upon her. Um, yeah, but that, well, that's, yeah, like, that's all headcanon anyway. Then that makes it even simpler, which is that the Krees are all jerks. So, so like defying their empire is not a morally complicated choice, right? Uh, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, well, that's that's right. I mean, I think I want to kind of go back to this to this idea and just pick it up a little bit about like how can something with a consistent set of rules not be fair? Because don't we all agree to play? Uh, to play by the same rules, and I feel like this is the sort of this is the sort of assertion, kind of social assertion that that it would be easy to to sort of challenge as seeming very silly on its face, but it's not silly. It's it's quite true, and I think what you have to do is um, zoom out, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, a set of rules that's internally consistent with all of the participants sort of agreeing to participate by these rules. Yes, okay, that is fair after a fashion with, with, you know, some of our, our intuitions about what, uh, about what fairness is intuitions that seem to be, seem to have at least some sort of inborn component because they, you know, they show up in children, uh, very, they show up in children very easy and like no fair is one of the, the first things a toddler learns to whine. Um, the, the, you know, the idea that like three people get small pieces of cake and one person gets a big piece of cake. I mean, unless it's their birthday, uh, doesn't, you know, even, even if it's their birthday, the toddlers will get upset. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like everyone should get the, everyone should get the same piece of cake. So everyone should get the same treatment under the rules, right? Um, everyone should have equal justice under the law, right? Everyone, uh, follows follows and obeys the same laws and uh so you know the the american justice system is completely fair right you know <laughs> and what you have to do what what you have to do is sort of zoom out and there are a couple of there are a couple of things like there are a couple of things. One is um, who set the rules for whose benefit, uh, and two, who gets to play, 
right? If, if you draw the scope of your universe, if you sort of Photoshop, uh, you know, selection tool around the game so that the universe is coextensive with the game and you only see the rules, well, yes, okay, that's fair. But if you zoom out and see the game as being a contingent thing, um, that exists within a broader social context, you know, then you can see that like the game was set up by someone for a reason. Uh, and, and the rules of the game reflect the, the, um, either the biases or, or not the biases, the intentions of whoever set it up. That's, that's one. And then two, uh, who, you know, who is allowed to play. And a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, the kind of childhood trauma stuff from Carol's, uh, life on earth is, uh, about, you know, not being allowed to play or being allowed to play and being ridiculed for the way in which she plays. Um, whether or not you know she's any good whether or not it was right to ask her to do the things that she's doing in in the first place right um this is the you know uh, this is the the way it kind of happens it happens for her uh and so the the pictures of her the the sequence of her um getting up and dusting herself off after a fall is not the kind of normal, the normal, like a kid riding a bike needs to, you know, fall off and learn to get back on the bike, you know, rub some dirt on it and get, get back in the game. Um, that's not it. It's, it's more that she's, you know, in all of those moments experienced a kind of, uh, a, a sort of traumatic event, right? Something that, that goes beyond, um, just the normal ups and downs of, of trying and failing and trying and failing and trying again, uh, for, for both reasons. Like the game was rigged against her and A and B, um, she is being allowed to participate under false pretenses or is not being treated the same as the, the other participants. Both of those things are true of Jude Law, right? She's there under false pretenses and the game is rigged against her uh, in which she's, she's sort of told that um, her power can be taken away or granted or, or taken away. That which is, that which is granted um, can that which is granted can also be taken away you know it, it's a favor we're doing you a favor letting you climb this rope and you know fall in in the mud and laughing at you and if you don't like it well we don't have to do you uh do you this favor right anyway that's that is kind of a a long disquisition on this particular topic but i think it's i think it it bears uh, delving into as much as I have, because it really is uh, for two reasons. Um, one, uh, because it really is part of the film's critique of patriarchy. And two, because it actually doesn't, it's pretty low key about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's clear that, uh, you know, it's clear that she's had some crappy experiences. It's clear that she hasn't been treated well by people in her life. It's clear that it's been that it's been a problem for her and has set her back, um, you know, unfairly. But the the dynamics of it are really more 
just allowed to exist rather than they are sort of spelled out heavy handedly, which I thought was a, a real sign of self-assurance by the movie like there's no scene in which she says i'm not too emotional there's no i mean that there's a there's no such thing and be like that's kind of not who i am i'm a little dissociated a lot of the time <laughs> like if anything the opposite is my you know yeah if i went to a shrink like we'd be talking about something very different than being overly emotional she gets one uh she gets one kind of triumphalist uh i don't have to prove anything to you but she's earned it at that point like and 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 we can let her have it the the main the kind of the modal uh technique of the movie is to not spell it out for you which is something that i i I appreciate because it shows a certain amount of maturity in the artist and it shows a certain amount of trust in the audience which i would not always say is a feature of the mcu Mark, did you want to jump in? Because I want to jump in now, and I, I realize we've been monologuing back and forth, and I want to spread the love. I think we're both going in the same directions. Maybe like uh, a, a, tease out a little more of the context of being a female fighter pilot in the late '80s and not being able to, to fly combat missions, and oh. like the specific context of that, and and we, might, that might be an opportunity to vector into like some of like the period stuff and then the, the nostalgia aspects of the movie as well. Okay. Yeah, I, think ah, has, I think he has some things to talk about that. Vector, right? I see what you <laughs> did there. That's right. What's the vector, right. Victor? Do you have a clearance, Clarence? Roger, Roger. <laughs> I'll put a pin in the other direction I was going to go in because this is interesting. So it's it's interesting that this is a, really it's a movie that's involved in and about the 90s. And one of the movies, the movie has some flaws, right? Although I hate to call movies flawed. If a movie has no flaws, I'm not interested. It's pretty is generally what I what I tend to think about things. One of the more interesting flaws in Captain Marvel is the fact that the character of Carol Danvers never actually really experiences the 90s on Earth, and yet the 90s on Earth are so important to her and and to the movie. So that's kind of like a bit of a discontinuity is and I guess it's part of what is meta about the movie and that it is telling you it is it's also sort of telling you about uh is this really the 90s? Is it really today? Are are the problems of the 90s real silly, the problems of today? But to get more specific, we're really talking about, I think, what, did you want to talk about the tail hook scandal? Is that what we're yeah, talking but, about? But, Peter, sorry, yeah, I, yeah, I want to, cool. like, a point, point of order, Mr. Speaker. The um, I, I feel like the 90s are not coextensive with the years 1992 yeah. uh, yes, to yes, 1999. Totally. Like, I feel like the 90s started in the very late 80s, and they they went to... By the time Britney Spears released Baby One More Time, the 90s were over, right? Like we were we were in the in fact like and and when Will Smith in in the same way that the 50s are a period of nearly 20 years lasting from the end of World War II until the time the Beatles appeared on the Ed Sullivan show, uh in that same way, the 90s are, you know, really the first two-thirds of the 90s. But 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 uh that's that, that's it. Thank you. I I uh, yield my time. I tend to clock the 90s as starting with the film Ghost, uh, although that's not necessarily accurate. Huh. I guess if you want to clock it just by the career of Jerry Zucker, uh, Naked Gun he made in the 80s, Naked Gun two and a half he made in the 90s, and Ghost is somewhere in the middle, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, because what we're talking about is the you know what you would call the early 90s, even though the movie takes place in 1995, at which point this soul situation has somewhat developed. Uh, this this idea that there's a bunch of big things that happen in the early 90s uh, that relate to this. The 
emergence of political correctness is a big one. Uh, I, I remember the episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where I first heard the concept, I think. I think that might have been, not that when I first heard of it, but when I first was aware that people were aware of it to the point that they thought it was funny. Uh, because I think there's a point where for Fresh Prince dies, where he goes to a graveyard, he meets some ghosts, and they refer to themselves as living impaired. And that was like a joke about political correctness <laughs> at the time. <laughs> that might have been a couple years later after wow. the sort of 90s and run of steam. But there is there is well, the, one of the big things that's happening is, of course, the reaction to AIDS is I think is it Matt, is it inappropriate for me to say that the 90s, as we understand them, they can't happen without AIDS. Uh, that AIDS is a sort of motive force in the in the nineties, and uh, the sort oh, of creation. Of, that. I, yeah, that's that, that's interesting. I think I see where you're going, but but yeah. yeah, by all means. So what AIDS does, right? I mean, this is this sort of super simple, oversimplified version. Oh, I know this. Opinion. It destroys the immune system. Yeah, it's the T cells. Oh, oh, oh. How a bill becomes a law. Uh, no, it's um, we're going to sing a song about how AIDS works. No, it's um, what the sequence of events that connects AIDS to Carol Danvers is actually very simple, which you would not think so, right? Which is that AIDS happens, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people are dying of AIDS. And the, a lot of the people who are dying are closeted gay people who've had who have achieved, acquired it from a partner. And the idea of gay people being closeted anymore is really no longer tenable. Uh, and and on top of that, the sheer magnitude of the grief being experienced, uh, and, and this is at a point where, you know, obviously AIDS is not just a gay disease, but at this point in the '80s, in the late in the mid to late '80s, gay people are really disproportionately dying from it in huge numbers, and so um, and that's just sort of how the pathology, you know, the sort of epidemiology of it evolved over time, um, because of that. You start seeing this sort of like this sort of coming out is happening across America uh, and other parts of the of the Western world. And and part of this coming out is the kind of like the sort of cry that's coming out of things like the theater and kind of art scenes that have lots of gay people in them who have up until this point been kind of like a known secret. But one of the other big things that you start seeing is was don't ask, don't tell is something that happens at this point. Right. Which is that gay people start demanding non-discrimination in various sorts of jobs. And uh, and you start see, because you get a Democrat elected president who is sympathetic to all of this uh, and he replaces Reagan. And also because they're, you know, not everybody in either party is necessarily totally monstrous about this. Um, but but you see a liberalization of the uh, acceptance of gay people and also kind of banning of various sorts of discrimination against them. And the specific follow up is that you're seeing don't ask, don't tell, and you're seeing the liberalization of being gay in the military. And what this brings up is like the glaring issue of sexism in the military, right? Which is like, oh, so now it's OK to be gay in the military, but it's not OK to be a woman, <laughs> which is which is. And, and this also is where we hear about the tail hook scandal, which is a big Air Force scandal about massive sexual harassment that's taking place inside the Air Force. Uh, women have been flying in the Air Force since the 40s at this point, but they were never allowed to fly combat missions. And they, of course, were not really high up in the leadership. But in the early 90s, you get don't ask, don't tell you get which, you know, from what had come before is a step forward, but is a notably limited step forward. And then you get a female head of the Air Force uh, and you have after the tailhook scandal. And, and then you get women being able to fly in combat missions. But this whole idea that like. The culture, the society is kind of really wounded and busted up and broken and, and everybody is like really distressed and there's no point in working for any of these institutions anymore that comes out of this sort of disenchantment of Gen X coming of age, I think is really connected 
to this idea of this massive epidemic that's going around and the way that the structures that are in society are serving to uh, pour cruelty on top of it, right? Just to sort of really rub insult into injury and and really be just utterly nasty to people who are really suffering. And then uh, this sort of, you know, you can, can make a sort of Jungian spiritual through line, right? From like, you know, uh, Freddie Mercury at home with his cats to like young people buying flannel shirts uh, at thrift stores and kind of walking around like zombies outside of gas stations. Right. Like it's like uh, there's just this this sort of really big psychic wound. Uh, and I don't necessarily believe in the psychic side of it. I'm speaking metaphorically. Right. Uh, and and part of this is that people do recognize, oh, yeah, we're also being awfully and incredibly sexist. And there are lots of feminists, of course, who are working at this time. But I do kind of feel like they're not at this point, specifically in the Air Force. These things are connected. Uh, and, 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 and Carol Danvers, you know, of all of the different Avengers characters who are related to sort of like this institution or that institution, like Tony Stark is kind of related to like Elon Musk and kind of tech culture in Silicon Valley. And of course, you know, Captain America is related to like the World War II generation. Carol Danvers seems to be really rooted in the Air Force, which I admire. Uh, it feels very she feels very ironically grounded in the kind of history uh, that's going on with that organization in this time. And her kind of psychology and attitude uh, seems to sort of feel it feels Air Force to me, knowing knowing people who've been in the Air Force. It feels familiar. Uh, um, so anyway, that that's what I would say is the sort of short, short version of where we are in history. And why is it that Carol Danvers was flying experimental missions rather than combat missions when she left in the 80s? And then when she comes back, OK, now she can fly combat missions. Uh, right. Like she can she can kind of like there's been a change that's happened, uh, um, although um, obviously to a degree, greater or lesser degree, it, you know, it happens to her in a different way than it happens to everybody else. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear as well, like to tease out something you mentioned earlier, Pete, like, um, you know, that that change did occur. Women were able to fly combat missions. And yet, like all the sexism that she encounters um, institutionally as well in the Air Force. Right? Remember that line? Like it's called the cockpit for a reason. Yeah. Um, that is obviously clearly meant to resonate with the 2019 world of Me Too and all the, the issues with the gender equality that we have today. Um, yeah. Like it's, it's stated the obvious, but it needs to be stated, right? I mean, I think it's fair to say that a lot of these changes that were being done in the 90s were attempted on a top-down basis, where like the leadership was trying to institute new policies. And the and, and this is just me also sort of thinking back to what it was like at the time. There wasn't really a feeling, as far as I remember, of like a big groundswell of political energy that was going to really accomplish things. Right? Like there was like there's a lot of despair and upsetness. But I, I remember from the 90s a sense that sort of the spirit of the 60s was dead. And and like this sort of the disenchantment with Vietnam was something that had settled in. And the Gulf War kind of like liberated it a little like sort of like cast it off like a little bit and the fall of the Soviet Union sort of like introduced the sense of optimism. But this was still very much a time in American history where people were looking to their authority figures to tell them what was going to happen. And and so an interesting difference, I think, in the culture, at least as I encountered it, and I was like a child, right? I was like a teenager. So don't listen to just me, was that sort of in the 90s, uh, the idea that you had to kind of like push up from the bottom with the same sort of energy that was coming down from the top and that those things could potentially work together. I didn't sense. And my mother was kind of going through graduate school and becoming having a sort of political awakening at the time. Uh, and so like, I saw it a little bit through her eyes of, of kind of like trying to figure out how this all this stuff worked together. But there was a sense that it wasn't going to work and, and that it was doomed. 
um, which is not how I think the young people who encounter this sort of phenomenon today uh, deal with it. Right? Like they, they they see their own role in it as something that's powerful and useful uh, and insistent and important and not really useless. And actually um, sort of showing yeah. up, actually showing, showing up and kind of operating the levers of the mainstream society. Whereas the, the, I mean, I feel like you, if you want to, one interesting continuum on which you could place Carol Danvers um, of white ladies in the 90s is on the continuum between Hillary Clinton and Courtney Love. Right. And like what from a from a kind of establishment kind of institutionalist, like working within, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton, the thing that she famously did in the 90s was propose a uh, propose a a health uh, care plan, national health care plan that was not adopted. Uh, And, you know, that's so that's the and then, you know, Courtney Love being Courtney Love and being a a sort of um, grunge rock uh, riot girl, you know, sort of um, figure at that time, working artistically and being sort of against the system and kind of uh, a lot of, you know, in in her recording with Hole um, and setting up challenges to a lot of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And those those both being archetypes, although I kind of feel like Hillary Clinton is encompasses a greater share of that archetype than necessarily Courtney Love does, maybe because there was a lot more success to be had and money to be made in music at the time than necessarily in women in politics didn't have as many opportunities. And even then it was limited in both cases, obviously. But I mean, this is the age of Lilith Fair, too. But there's no Lilith Fair in Carol Danvers, except for like meeting her sister and and kind of recognizing their shared sisterhood. I guess there's like a tiny bit of it, (laughs) Um, but but not so much. She think that she might think that uh, Sarah McLaughlin's a little bit soft. (laughs) Let's uh, (laughs) let's roll back to something that you said earlier, Pete, about this being two movies. Yes. Uh, two movies in one. I want to make sure that this idea gets gets an airing because this is something that we've noticed about a lot of uh, a lot of big blockbuster movies recently that they seem to be there seem to be kind of parallel tracks running in a lot of them. And I wonder if it is related to the idea that um, a lot of these movies now have two directors, which is such an interesting thing because the idea of like the administration of a blockbuster superhero movie is such an unwieldy task that it's almost like no single mortal can, uh, can stand it. No, no one, no one can hold an infinity stone, you know, even, <laughs> even Star-Lord had to have the other guardians kind of around him, uh, you know, like, uh, supporting him in order to in order to hold the the infinity stone I, I think there's also something to be said about kind of the the demographic targets of these movies but that there there seem to be a lot of a lot of movies seem to be trying to do different things and it ends up with a kind of multi vocal quality in the film and i think you think this is a a film that has that uh has that tendency as well right yeah, yeah, this was the thing that I put a pin in earlier, so I'm glad to come back to it. The um, I'd like to think of this movie as having a French half and a German half. Maybe that's appropriate. Maybe it's inappropriate. And it emerges from the stuff that we've been talking about really nicely, actually. So I like that we've coming to this now because we've talked about institutional authority and the idea that our quote unquote society is formed in these kinds of cases with a the idea that we're supposed to be trusting the institutions 
and that the institutions are supposed to be setting rules for us that are in our interest, but that really do inscribe the limitations that people are facing and set up you know, who gets to play and what they get to do. And so if you start poking holes in that, I think that you can end up with a couple of different conclusions about society. And I think that the Captain Marvel movie has two very different conclusions that it comes to. And one of them dominates the first half of the movie and one of them dominates the second half of the movie. And I don't think really like I think it's possible to think of them as having a transition that reveals that the second half is the true half. But I'm not willing to grant it that I feel like they're two very different ideas and that they exist in sort of pockets. And I would have watched either movie in full. I thought both movies were interesting, which I don't usually say about a movie that I feel like is multivocal in this way. But so, okay, so hear me out. Then the French part of the movie, right? You have a woman who knows that she's capable of things that the people around her don't think she's capable of. She wants to do things other than what she looks like she can do, right? There's the idea of what she looks like, and there's the idea of what she wants to do. And she wants to separate what she can do from what she looks like, and that this is sort of a very motivating force for her. And she is in a war against a man who is, of course, uh, played endearingly by uh, uh, Mickelson. Is that his name? Um, I, I should learn this guy's name because he's a, a great new actor who works, although he's not very new. Um, Matt uh, Mickelson? Matt Mickelson, yes, right? And Who is a man, right, who does not want to look like what he's doing, right? It's like it's a Carol Danvers has a look and then she has action and the scrolls, right, have action and they have a look. And so the look changes in the scrolls relative to the action. And for Carol Danvers, the action changes relative to the look. So they're really mirror images of each other. So it's a movie that's sort of of a kin. I call it French, but you could also say it's similar to like John Woo's The Killer, where the good guys and the bad guys are mirror images of each other or the or Infernal Affairs or The Departed. It actually feels kind of Asian in certain respects, too. Uh, right. Where where um, the uh, the good guys and the bad guys are mirror images of each other. In the and sense that she's yeah. she's standing there like Mulan saying, when will my reflection show who I am inside? <laughs> well, but that's the yearning that the second half of the movie satisfies in through fantasy, right? <laughs> and the first movie does not admit to a satisfaction to this conundrum. Uh, I think the first part of the movie puts her in a political situation where nobody is right and where nobody really is what they look like, but which also creates the fact that there's no independently verifiable way to know who anybody is, right? Like action isn't necessarily superior to how you look, because if it were, the squirrels wouldn't be trying to change what they look like, right? It's that the, the disjointment between the two things creates this blurred sense of identity, and the violence of war exists in this context, but it, and it is both pointless and insists upon itself, right? She is in this war. It is kind of noirish. She's in this war against the Skrulls. She's fighting the Skrulls. We have every reason to believe that the Skrulls are bad and that the, and we know, we know that the Kree are probably just as bad and that that's kind of what she's eventually going to come to terms with, which is that the Kree are also villains and the Skrulls and Kree are both villains and this war is stupid. And, and that's kind of, and when you're hearing about Marvel is trying to stop the war, right? Like there's this light that's being built that's going to stop the war. The French half of the movie, the Asian half of the first half of the movie, right, is like not admitting to an easy solution to that problem. And, and it's also, as a result, not particularly sentimentally superhero-y, 
right? Like there's not a lot to really hang your hat on in terms of, you know, uh, triumphant moments or like real kind of like sentimental character development that makes you really feel for her. All that stuff is backloaded in the second half of the movie, at least from my perspective. I don't know if you guys felt similar or differently about that. Um, so pause. Any thoughts about about that part of the movie before I, I kind of talk about the second half? No, that's uh, I mean, describing it as French is is, I think, a, a discursive masterstroke because it kind of gets at it gets at the fatalism, both the both the tragedy of it and the kind of, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. It's like, well, this is what the world is like. So how about you get really good at baking bread and try to enjoy yourself? Would it be fair to call that the, the small C conservative side? <laughs> you know, I mean. As long as you're allowed to, for the second half to be the big C conservative, <laughs> <laughs> right? I th- but no, I think that's right because it's about the it's about the innate non perfectibility of beings, right? Right, right, right. Totally, totally. And the idea that like you're never really going to work for a government that is good. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> right? like, or you're never yeah. you're never really totally going to. Uh, apotheosize into the person that you most long to be because you know you are the same you are the same person as you know the people who wrote the greek tragedies right or you are the same you're the same type of person uh as uh any any of those historical historical people actually a powerful symbol that reinforces all this and something that i wish that they come back to uh for a third time is the train because when she's on Cree and she's talking with Jude Law about the supreme intelligence and how the supreme intelligence appears to everybody as there and as an authority figure that they trust, like some, like a Vorlon would, and uh, and that she, and she's whoa, no Cree would tell you what their supreme intelligence looks like. Right. She's on a train with a whole bunch of other Cree who have no voice in the movie. They don't participate in the events of the movie at all, but they all share this experience, and. and Thinking about the events of the later half of the movie is problematic with regards to this part of the movie because Carol Danvers gets very comfortable with killing Cree by the end of the movie. But all the Cree are riding this train. And, and it's a train. It's not a car, right? Like, it's not an airplane they get to fly. They're all along for the ride, and none of them have control of their situation. Like, right? It's, it's not like she is – she is not – Carol Danvers is not uniquely powerless in the face of an institution at the beginning of this movie. She lives on an entire planet where everybody is powerless in the face of institution and is mostly unaware of it. And it seems like the energy is going to be that she's going to become aware of it. And this doesn't necessarily mean that she's going to be able to totally defy it, but at least by knowledge of it, right, she might get to – the French aspect would be like, oh, well, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. right? She's going to come to some sort of terms with her situation that's going to allow her to, to – survive uh like as a person and sort of maybe lean towards some sort of uh actualization and then there's the train in la that she gets on right where she gets on a train in la that's the mirror of the train that she's on with the Cree. and whereas all the Cree, they talk about well you see god basically the true the true thing that nobody see that nobody tells anybody else about is that you've all seen god and then she gets on the train in los angeles and she's looking at every person and she's trying to determine which person she's seen before, right? And and it's this idea of like, you know, th- there's this powerful mirror idea, right? Of like, oh, are, are the people on the train this sort of recollection of this kind of ancestral memory? Uh, or who is important to you? Who has been important to you in your life? And and this idea that that the idea that the person that she saw before is the person who's going to kill her and the person she saw before who she doesn't know is also the person who's God for her. It's all connected. 
and is and it's really lovely. I, I think it's really nice. And this it all comes together in that sort of beautiful moment where she punches the smiling old lady in the face, right? Where it's it's this joyful kind of uh, comedic disruption of the whole scenario. And also a very good, by the way, good direction. Good like a really good kind of a comic sense and B. I don't know why everything is A and B. I'm also switching back and forth between letters and numbers uh, tonight. A, a really good a comic sense and two kind of um realistic sense of like the reaction in the car is like damn (laughs) what such a thing is possible yeah exactly (laughs) scuba scuba gear lady just went crazy (laughs) right right it's like wow I've had the scales have fallen from my eyes and I've seen what my world is really like, which that it's full of brutality against the weak. Right? Like, and, and there's something about that that thrills me. Right. Like, I know that the world is pointlessly brutal. Look, this old lady just got punched and now she's drop kicking her. Right. This is crazy. Right. Um, and this all lives in the first half of the movie. And, and I think this is part of the difference between me and Mark seeing the movie, because for me, seeing Samuel L. Jackson finally constantly showing up as not Samuel L. Jackson reinforces my sense of alienation while I'm watching the movie. And I'm like, well, none of this is real because Samuel Jackson isn't even really in this movie. It's this guy in this, in this puppet mask who is sometimes Samuel Jackson, sometimes a younger actor with his face. Uh, Speaking of John Woo, right? The killer face off. I'm going to take your face off, right? It's, it's all we're in the vortex people. The, all these ideas are connected culturally. Um, but then there's the second half of the movie, right, which is like comes to a very different conclusion about society in much the same way that Germany came to a very different conclusion about society in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, which is, of course, dark and brutal. And I don't mean to. In- I mean, every superhero movie is a little bit fascist. I don't think this movie is necessarily more fascist than any other superhero movie, but it's certainly like playing a little bit in some of these ideas that end up that start out with the sense of liberation associated with them, but then end up kind of feeding fascism in certain ways. And and one of these ideas is that society, right, is governed by this elite group of intellectuals who have determined these kind of control mechanisms that are going to like limit you and control you. And all you really should do is kind of get in touch with the people, right? And kind of look around you and talk to the common people. And if you talk to the common people and understand the common people's culture, you'll appreciate their spirit and their spirit is the true spirit. And if you take on upon yourself the true spirit of the people, you too can kind of burst forth and take the 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 home that is entitled to you. Right? That there that there is and this is I mean on a basic level it's like nationalism. It's that the country exists because there is something essential to the people and their culture that is right. That is and that there's things about kind of bureaucracies that are separated from the will of the people that is wrong. Uh, and and that Carol Danvers like becomes this sort of Nietzschean bird of prey. She goes from being the lamb who's been cowed by the elites who want to keep her weak to realize her full power and kind of burst forth. Right. And then this, it's funny because you often see these sorts of ideas in opposition, this idea of kind of liberation and this sort of idea of kind of nationalism are often seen as at odds with each other. But there's certain intersections of them in this movie uh, and in the culture in general, right, where like. She she is a kind of leader. You could see her as the leader of a nation and the spirit of a nation, like a Katniss Everdeen kind of figure who kind of bursts forth as a as a you know red, white, and blue street screaming eagle, right? Through you know, shooting across the sky and blowing up the enemy spaceships and saving the saving the world. I mean, she does the Superman move of turning the nuclear missiles around, right? Like uh, and, and throwing them back at each other, which is like 
you know, vintage. And so there's this sort of German half of the movie, which is both sort of expressionistic in the sense that if you're an individual and you're raging against society, telling you that you can't be who you are, like your rage is the truth. And that that is the thing that is that is should be paid attention to the kind of rage and cruelty of your situation is not a sign that things are irreconcilable. It's a signpost towards what you should be doing. Right. Which is which is freeing yourself and your people uh, by sort of bursting forth in great fury and violence and, and resisting rules that you find that are unjust. As opposed to the other side, which is like freeing yourself mentally from rules that are unjust by recognizing that the world is not fundamentally just. And, and in the second half of the movie, it's freeing yourself of rules that are unjust by recognizing that you should be in charge rather than the people that are in charge. Right. That you are a law unto yourself. Yeah. Exactly. The Ubermensch. When, She's basically the female Ubermensch. Yeah. When Carol was in Hala's land, let my marvel <laughs> go. And I mean, it's not only old people, only bad people who, uh, you know, are fueled by this kind of ideology, like all sorts of heroes are supposed to go forth and conquer in this sort of way. Right. Like Johnny Appleseed <laughs> going around planting apple trees, you know, like the world tells you you're crazy. You're not crazy. Right. Apple apples are delicious. And you're you're planting the seeds of a country and a people. Right. Like he's a religious fundamentalist, you know, Swedenborgian and such. And he's kind of traveling around. There's all sorts of American folk heroes who bring this spirit of like, my I myself am the sort of right and truthful way that humanity should be relating to each other, as opposed to the way that you encounter when you go to like the bank or you deal with like the courts, <laughs> right? Or when the supreme intelligence comes to you in the appearance of John Wayne and tells you that you're supposed to like you know uh, put your recycling out on Sunday night, right? Like it's it's uh, that or, or, or when you write a movie from Blockbuster and they say you have to have it back in five days or else they're going to charge you an enormous late fee. You know what? What if I kept it forever and until you cease to exist, Blockbuster? Have you considered that? <laughs> <laughs> That is an interesting. That is an interesting approach to the problem of late fees, right? Which <laughs> well, is uh, second <laughs> yeah. only to the problem of evil in theology. Is the problem of late fees? I mean, like she lands in a night, the Radio Shack, right? <laughs> the yeah. blockbuster. She she is lands among institutions that are fundamentally broken because they're resisting change. And there's this question really around, and it's even present in this movie. Is the is the destruction of Blockbuster something that we should be happy about because it was done by something like Netflix? Is it something that we should be sad about because it meant that it, it was even though we liked it, there was something fundamentally broken about it. And maybe we were stupid to ever think that it was good. Maybe it's our hubris at thinking that Blockbuster was going to be around forever. There's just so many different ways to intersect with this idea that the institutions are busted and and, and that um, there's not. And this movie doesn't just pick one critique. It, it has that sort of core critique of like, you're not, you know, don't accept rules that are unfair to you under the assumption that they were made in your interest because they probably weren't uh, right. That's like it's sort of core critique. But there's all sorts of other little critiques of institutional authority in this movie that don't align with each other. And that could you could see that as a bug or you could see it as a feature, I think, uh, in terms of like, yeah, the movie kind of doesn't hang together at certain times. Uh, I mean, a big one, I I thought of that i don't know if you had thoughts about this matt was the idea that like she says because because the whole thing about the punching in the kung fu studio or whatever she says the same thing about racing her friend's camaro like she takes a shortcut she doesn't think of shortcuts as against the rules the idea that you're both going to drive on the same street is a reasonable rule for a car race i mean and nobody thinks mario kart is fair <laughs> right like it's uh 
that that's that's the sort of assumption, right? Um, so we kind of sympathize with her friend and not necessarily with her. But she also says that she's she has never heard of and doesn't understand rules of engagement, and she's a military pilot. And that's kind of a problem, right? Because military because rules of engagement as a military pilot are supposed to be what protects civilians and is supposed to be what protects countries from unnecessary wars. And if you don't believe in those things, but you still oppose unnecessary wars and you still seem to really care about civilians, you have a certain contradiction that's going on in you that is not easily resolved. Well, I, th- uh, I think that there is a there is a kind of letter of the law spirit of the law slippage that happens in the character of of Carol, where she like in in terms of being an, uh, a law unto yourself, you sort of know what is right in your heart, right? Rather than being, uh, I mean, being part of a, a superior race um, <laughs> of superheroes, right? Like, I'm talking about superheroes. I'm talking about oh, Avengers. Yeah. You know, like yeah. uh, Avengers. Yep. You know that. Um, you know what's what's right in your your heart, but I'm I am like really taken with what you're describing, Pete, because it sort of seems it it uh, it does um, drive home to me how far into the mainstream critiques of enlightenment. Uh, critiques of the enlightenment or a kind of a kind of like blanket dismissal of enlightenment ideas um has been driven do do you know what i mean that like that the idea of that uh, you know the idea that in a in a uh, you know sort of uh woke triumphalism can be can see the civilians on the train right in in Los Angeles as uh individuals worthy of being protected and the civilians on the train on it's Hala right is the Cree or am I mistaking it with the Hala back uh, no no uh, Carol ain't no Hala back girl um the <laughs> uh, on the Cree uh, homeworld, right? Like seeing seeing them as well. They're all Nazis. Not to, I mean, not to Godwin us, but the the intellectual um, underpinnings of the Avengers are in World War Two. So there you go. Um, the uh, right they they are all there is no they they are a totalitarian government right there is no yeah. civilian there are no civilians in uh, on the 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 Cree. Uh, in the Cree collective, rather than seeing them as victims of the kind of uh, of the kind of demographic microtargeting and psychological microtargeting and like availability cascades and other you know um, cognitive biases that we were talking about last time on this very podcast, you know what I mean? Like they, they've been manipulated by uh, an artificial intelligence into believing in doing the things that they believe in do. You know that that like where is that? You know they're not right. They're not not they're not just all nazis you know um the the the, uh, the idea that but the, the idea that like that's ridiculous looking looking at this movie that's ridiculous saying you know um you know some sort of like fundamental reading of all of these people as though they are um somehow all the same or somehow just a little bit misunderstood is ridiculous. Uh, Stanley Fish, who I love to bring up, um, not, not talking about temporal readings, but just talking about the meaning of Paradise Lost, where some people are like, well, the devil has a point. Stanley Fish's uh, retort to that was, no, the devil doesn't have a point because you've forgotten that God is God. And right, you, you can't you can't read uh, Paradise Lost without understanding that God is God, and that these things aren't these things that you think are equivalent because the, you know 
they're making a case, I guess they, they're making arguments, right, um, are non-equivalent because God is God. And, uh, I, and it struck me that like, oh, well, the, 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 the Cree are the Nazis. The Cree are the, right, like, um, and there is a little bit in a movie about masks and in a movie about deception, you know, uh, in a movie about taking off a mask that, uh, ironically ends with Captain Marvel being in a mask looking kind of like the Rocketeer, you know? Yep, yep. The, with the Mohawk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Point. That, uh, you know, that, um, it ends up, it ends up in a movie about masks and taking off masks. There's sort of only one thing you can do to take off the mask. So the Kree, far from being noble warriors, take off the mask. They're bad. They are on a, a downward trajectory, right? And the Skrulls, even though they have committed, you know, many horrible war crimes and, and, uh, what, what, uh, it's a very good. It's a very good line um, that Captain Scroll has, where uh, he says, "My hands are are filthy in this war. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that like I'm above." Uh, yeah. that I'm above any of this, but they're unmasked and their trajectory is sort of, is sort of upward. Right. And that like, you sort of, you, you depend narratively on, you depend narratively on, on these things as categories rather than, rather than the specific details of kind of like honoring the individuality and subjectivity of every individual and kind of understanding the psychological forces that, that shaped them into the being that they were right. And there are kind of different categories and the scrolls end up in a persecuted minority category, you know, Mm -hmm. um, whether or not, given the whole history of the Kree Scroll War and the Scrolls, uh, you know, many activities, uh, whether or not that's that's totally accurate, and the Kree end up in a the the Kree end up being Nazis, you know, uh, end up being totalitarians, I should say, right? And that's sort of uh, anti-American, and that's anti-American and bad. Um, and and it's it you know it is interesting. I mean, it is a thing to note in life sometimes in in your own life or politically or whatever when the fight turns from being a fight about about the the details which are always more complicated into a fight over who gets to occupy certain predefined discursive um, discursive positions. So like to a certain extent, I want to say that with the German movie expressionist also, because it's, it's the, the part in which she wears the costume and catches on fire and like does all these poses, you know, the, like the, the, um, what is it called? When you bring the, the leg up, that's not Tondu. That's, uh, the leg in, in, oh, I forget the ballet name for it, but like, you know, the, the fists raised in the air. Um, she gets super hood ornamenty in the, yeah. in the, <laughs> the, the interminable third act of this, of this film. Um, that like, uh, it's expressionistic in that sense. But, but of course I, I don't, I, I see the tension you're describing and, and I think the answer reading in terms of the film is that no, God is God, you know, and that's uh, uh that that Captain Marvel's the good guy, right? Exactly, right? the good good woman in this yeah, guy. I mean, yeah. no, there should be a gender neutral term for a good guy. Uh, uh, I, let's work on it. The good, good them? No, that doesn't work. We'll we'll, we'll workshop it and come back. Yeah, and that, that like um, yeah, is capital the hero G, is capital G good? Yeah, is yeah. capital H hero? And that like uh, you know everything kind of falls away um, faced with that faced with that very basic fact. 
Yeah, and it's not like these are novel sorts of conflicts for it's this superhero movie treats them more rigorously than a lot of other superhero movies do. But it's not like this is unique in having these kinds of sort of weird internal hypocrisies wherein, you know, the enemies of the superhero are, you know, the counted as bad unjustifiably. I mean, one of my favorite Marvel movies, which I think is constantly underrated by people, addresses this head on, which is, of course, Iron Man 3. <laughs> where they, where yes, this, the henchman, <laughs> I was about to say. Yeah, Mark, yes. catch that out. What are you what are you saying? Oh, oh sure. You know, like it, um, you know, rather than uh, saying that, you know, Iron Man is the hero and that gives him license to just, you know, mercilessly blow away as many henchmen as possible. There's this scene where he's breaking out uh, from from the imprisonment. Um, first, he blows away a bunch of henchmen, and then one of them says, "One of them has his hands up and says, I, I don't like these guys. He's a bunch of weirdos.' He just drops his gun and runs away, <laughs> yes. which is played for laughs. Yep. Um, and and that movie has plenty of laughs uh, too. So yeah, all, all those Marvel movies are having their cake in any of you too. Sure. Yeah. Definitely. And I guess and if you locate the hero, as Matt's saying, with Carol Danvers, then, you know, the the important moral thrust is her liberation from the institutional sexism that's been keeping her down since she was a child, which has taken many forms and morphed into a bunch of other sorts of global, social, discursive and political problems and kind of occupied that space at various times in interesting ways. But at the end of the day, that's what the movie is grounded in, and that's what the movie tells you it's grounded in. Uh, I don't necessarily feel like we need to shortchange it by insisting that that's what it is really about and only what it is about. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to appreciate. Um, but, yeah, I think when you're saying stuff like God is God, you're meaning that, you know, you're not it is it is not really authentic and honest to say that you can approach a movie like this with real impartiality among its participants. Yeah. Or that, that like the standards of the, the, the standards of the human world are, you know, really appropriate to, uh, yeah, the standards that you would apply to a problem among you and your friends or you and your neighbors or you and your country or you and your world are, you know, the same standards that that you should apply here because these things are there. They they operate on a symbolic order, you know. Right. Right. Definitely. Mm. Hey, uh, you know, you know, if I uh, were given Carol advice, it would be don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. A song that doesn't show up uh, in in this film, but I thought thematically actually could have uh, could have uh, shown shown up in this film slightly. No, it totally is in the movie. Yeah, wait, it's it is. Movie. Oh, wait, it, yeah, really? They're, they're driving. Yeah, they're driving around in, in the car. Uh, it doesn't really thematically link up. With, with what's going on? Oh, I wanted it in the montage. I wanted it into the montage and the montage of people telling her that she couldn't. She couldn't do things, um, but no. Okay, there, there was a, it operated on me so subliminally that that that's because this film features many of the songs of the early '90s, the greatest period in music in the history of man, and coincidentally, the period in which the three of us came of age and had our yeah. uh, adolescence. Coincidentally, entirely coincidentally. coincidentally. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know what did how did uh, how did you guys like the uh, the Nine Inch Nails shirt of it all. <laughs> I mean, look, okay, so to, to get canonical or whatever here, right, Carol Danvers leaves Earth in 1989, right? Uh, she doesn't come back until 1995, right? And Come As You Are by Nirvana 
comes out in 1991. So it's been around on Earth for a number of years, but there's no reason to believe that Carol Danvers has encountered it, whereas other people of the Kree have encountered it. So when Carol Danvers is talking to Supreme Intelligence and Come As You Are is playing on the record player, right? The, we have to conclude that the Supreme Intelligence is not drawing it from Carol Danvers' subconscious as it is drawing the picture of Annette Benning, but that the Supreme Intelligence of the Kree has visited Earth since 1991 and has developed an independent fondness for Nirvana, which it feels compelled to share with her in this particularly important moment for no other reason than that she might finally get it. I think the thing that, that sort of humanizes the Supreme Intelligence and also makes it even more of a jerk. Uh, <laughs> that is that is, of course, silly headcanon. Uh, the, the diegesis that's going on throughout the 90s stuff is not cut and dried. But anyway, Mark, what were you going to say? Yeah, I mean, I think your point, Pete, and we, we've touched upon this a little bit here and there is like it, it it doesn't quite have an authentic engagement with 90s pop culture because uh of, of carol's particular character arc greg and how she d- departed uh part earth in, in the late 80s and is deposited back in 1995 most notably while we're talking about the music aspect of it right like in the earlier scenes like in the in the bar karaoke she's wearing a guns and roses t-shirt okay yes. yeah and then like that is like that makes a lot of sense for a woman in 1989 to wear um, and so, like, when she goes to meet the Supreme Leader, like, I feel like, I don't know, Night Train or, or Sweet Child of Mine should be playing <laughs> instead. Sweet Child um, of Mine would have been perfect, right? Yeah, it would have been. And, like, in general, like, I would have loved to hear heard some ripping Guns N' Roses uh, music in the, but again, it, it didn't fit with, like, the 1995 setting. And, and it, that, I think, is all why it doesn't quite work when we hear the No Doubt song, I'm Just a Girl, in the climactic fight scene. Like that doesn't song doesn't feel authentic to her. It's like it's too on the nose and it's too speaking to the audience. Like there's something else there. I feel like doesn't work. Like, you know, whereas like all the pop culture uh, music from like Guardians of the Galaxy, the first Guardian of the Galaxy movie, like all of those like were, were perfect and exquisite. And none of that really quite felt like the case in this movie. It's, I feel yeah, like it's a, it's a the it's an instance of the filmmakers talking to you using a, a song that's not appropriate to the character that is a, appropriate to the time period that the movie is set in, but that is really appropriate to the contemporary message right that the film yeah. has so yeah. it's kind of like it's it's a little bit uh a little bit of this slippage of like what are the rules who made the rules and who gets to play you know yeah. <laughs> that, like yeah. uh uh that happens with these um uh with these song choices i mean the real reason is because they are there to sort of flatter the tastes of the the movie going public right of of people our age uh and maybe just a little bit younger or a little bit older who are going to go see this movie in in large numbers and i heard uh i i read I forget where I saw this. I'm sorry I can't credit it, but it was a tweet that someone quoted that said, you know, in 15 years, in some super fashionable, uh, exclusive velvet rope club, some DJ is going to drop Baby Shark and the whole place is going to go wild. <laughs> right? And that, like, uh, that, like uh, can, can you just imagine oh the EDM gosh. remix? It actually would be really, really good. Um, 
Yeah. The movie has an identical relationship with popular music as the movie Star Trek Beyond. So if you like this movie, I recommend Star Trek Beyond. And I really like Star Trek Beyond, so I have nothing to blame this movie for, really. But if you tell me you think that this movie, the use of the music is appropriate, and you thought the music in Star Trek Beyond was not appropriate, I would question the internal consistency of your logic. (laughs) 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 Which is what I would expect to be the default condition for most people. So I'm basically throwing this out there directly to be a little bit controversial and trolly but uh but yeah anyway it's uh, star trek beyond is criminally underrated and i'm glad that people like this movie because it's pretty good i like it a lot so mm. there you go all yep. right with with uh those parting thoughts on the the cultural context of the film we obviously don't have time to do because we've sort of gone over our normal uh time but uh we don't have time to do uh listener feedback but there was some great listener feedback there has been this week we will get to it in a future episode uh and and i just want to give one sentence from the first comment on last week's episode about uh machine learning algorithmic predictions uh you know, predictive analytics, things, things like this, uh, by listener Joe Posner, uh, who writes as a former Netflix employee, I'm going to well, actually your comments, uh, about their recommender and machine learning algorithms. Well, actually you were right on all counts. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe Posner. Um, there's some good comments on on uh, on that episode. If you want to go uh, and read them, you can find the comments on this episode by going to the homepage, clicking through to the show notes for this episode. And if you have a comment, we would love to have it. And if you would like to respond to what you find there, uh, we would love that as well. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank uh, thank Pete and Mark. Thank you for podcasting with me uh, until next week visit us uh, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Before we wrap, can I just add that this movie joins, of all things, Terminator Genesis in the category of movies where the main character believes in his or her own ability and then is able to rip the chip out of his or her neck that is holding the character back. And that is just odd is the only word I have for it. I mean, come on. It's not like this is a movie where somebody comes across some strange piece of technology from a planet that they've never been to and is just able to use it because they're awesome. Oh, oh, never mind. <laughs> I mean, this isn't a movie where, you know, uh, the main the the main most famous actor who's in it, there was some sort of really big problem that would have dictated that they wouldn't have been in it, but then they decided to fix it by using a whole bunch of rewrites. No, that's 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 not what I'm saying is that this is pretty much a shot for shot remake of Terminator Genesis. <laughs> 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 Except it's set in the nineties, so instead of USB cores, they use CD ROMs to hilarious effect. Mm-hmm. <laughs>